You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English, and we're also joined by Dr. Patrick Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner is the director of the Residency PhD Program and Associate Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of a number of books, including a commentary on Acts, The Visual Word, An Illustrated Guide to the New Testament Books, The Mission of the Triune God, A Theology of Acts, and lots of other books. I'm not going to list them all off here because there is a multitude of books. And he's got a forthcoming book on the Transfiguration. Dr. Schreiner, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you guys. I love what you're doing here. Absolutely. Can I call you Patrick from here on out or do I need to keep calling you Dr. Schreiner? <laughs> yes, call me Patrick, please. Okay. I'll just say, if you're going to keep calling him Dr. Schreiner, I demand that you call me Dr. English. Under no... Patrick and I literally have the exact same degree. We got it the exact same semester from the exact same institution. So Kyle, you get to pick. It's either Patrick well, and JT or doctors. Yeah, if that's if, if that's my choice, I'm going Patrick and JT all day, every day, I think, okay? I, th- I think we both prefer that. Okay, fantastic. Well, we've been talking about the Doctrine of Salvation on this 10th season, along with us just covering some of the other topics that are near and dear to the heart of Knowing Faith and the partnership that JT, Jen, and I have had. But as we've been covering the Doctrine of Salvation, we find ourselves at the doctrine of glorification. And, and admittedly, this, like regeneration, might be one of those aspects of the doctrine of salvation that is not as familiar to you as something like justification or sanctification. And that's why we wanted to have another guest on today to just kind of help us think through this topic. So let's just start here. And Patrick, I'm going to give it to you first because you're the guest. We'll give you the right of honor to give you the first volley here. Where does the doctrine of glorification fit in to our doctrine of salvation? Like if you're just lining it all out, you're laying it all out, where is glorification in the mix when it comes to the doctrine of salvation? Yeah, there's like two ways that I think of how it fits in. Number one is you think of Romans 8.30 and kind of that golden chain, as people call it, uh, predestination, calling, justification, and then it has the term glorified or glorification. And so that chain of salvation, uh, the order of salvation is talking about what God has done before time, how he has called us, how he has made us right. And glorification is really the final state of the redeemed, the final state that we're longing for. And so if you look at that chain, though, what's interesting is sanctification is not in there. Mm-hmm. So for glorification is kind of a systematic theology term. It's in the Bible, but we use it in a way of like a final state, but it's also a process. So it kind of fits as the final state of sanctification, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So what I'm trying to say is that you can kind of view it as either the final new heavens, new earth, how our bodies will be glorified, or the process of from glory to glory to glory. And so there's two different ways of thinking about it, I think, in the scriptures. But in more systematic terms, we like to think of it as that that kind of final state of the redeemed. Yeah, that's how, when I was taught glorification— I, I was taught in a very kind of traditional, reformed, like systematic approach of like glorification is the final state uh, of the the Christian, new heavens, new earth, resurrected body. JT Jin, I don't. When you heard glorification for the first time, or in your muscle memory with glorification, do you go process or event? Like, what is your first kind of like knee jerk when you hear the word? Do you think final state or part of a process? No, oh, I think event. Okay, yeah. I don't know if that's right or not, but that's what comes. That's that's right. my first understanding yeah, of it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think what about so you? Too. That'd be my first instinct. 
Yeah. So when we're thinking about this from a more process perspective, Patrick, that like, okay, it is this, we do see this cadence in scripture. You've already referenced to transform from one degree of glory to the next, but what are we actually talking about? Like what, what is the transformation that's happening? Whether it's a final state upon which the transformation is kind of bestowed, or it's something that's ongoing over mm-hmm. the course of time that then is kind of crystallizing or coming together in a final pronouncement. What is that thing though? If justification is being declared righteous and sanctification is being made righteous or conformed to the image of God in Christ, then what is glorification? Yeah, glory is a word that just means like heaviness or weightiness, and it usually mm-hmm. describes who God is. And so when I'm thinking of the process, I don't want to confuse the discussion, but I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled faces, we're beholding the Lord, and we are being transformed from yeah. the same image, from glory to glory. Those are the two words used. And so he uses actually image language there, so image of God type language, So it seems like the glorified state is specifically that we're entering or re-entering that kind of perfect whole state of what it means to be in the image of God. Now, what does that actually mean is another hard question. Like, what does that mean? Well, it seems in the Bible, there's a sense in which, um, you know, we will receive 1 Corinthians 15 glorified bodies um, Mm -hmm. that will not perish. There will be no, no, no more suffering. So Paul and Peter speak about... Uh, the sufferings of this present age, not worth being compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. This is where it kind of meshes a little bit with sanctification. We are being transformed even now, but then there will be that final moment, 1 Corinthians 15, where we, we receive the heavenly body. So that that's kind of the, the state of what we're talking about. I think it does really relate to our bodies and what it means to be in the image of God. Hmm. You know, I wonder... How much of glorification, Patrick, is tied to a reestablishment of like Adamic rule or like the or or good rule and reign? Like I I wonder, uh, and I, I'm blanking on the name of um, it's a female scholar. She wrote a book. I, I could see it on my shelf, and I was trying to grab it with my mind. I can't. But she talks about this when it comes to Romans 8, kind of distancing it from the very kind of logical order of salvation, that golden chain, so to speak. How much of glorification is a restoration of the Adamic rule and reign or the uh, vice regency of humanity over all things in the new heavens and new earth? I, I, I wonder, is that, is that in there at all? Or is it all just about a body that's broken that's now mended? No, I think, I think it's totally a, a restoration. I mean, we think about Jesus as the kind of true image of God, Colossians 1. Right. And that as we are incorporated into him, we are actually, our image is being redeemed. So, uh, you know, I began with talking about the golden chain, but I actually think the, probably the more helpful way of thinking about it is the storyline. And I describe the gospel as kind of a U shape or a V shape where you start where you are in the image of God, Genesis one twenty seven. And then the fall occurs and you kind of go down that you. And redemption, restoration, glorification is actually returning to that state and even a better state, I'd argue. And and this is so, I mean, I could go through the storyline even more, but you think about Paul talking about what is sin. It's exchanging the glory of God, Romans 1, for images resembling man and birds and animals. Mm -hmm. Or the famous Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it seems like Paul's interpreting Genesis as mm-hmm. 
we have this glory as image bearers, man, male and female, and that something was distorted in the fall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even Jewish literature talks about uh, Adam and Eve walking around kind of sh- as shining figures, that they had yep. this glory because God's presence was with them. And I think that's what we're, we are trying to get back to. And, and I would just also say here that in Protestant circles, this doctrine I think is really important for us to think about because we often think about how we are saved, the means by which we're saved, and we don't always think about the goal of salvation. Mm-hmm. In other words, the end. And, and I think in the church, it's hard because sometimes it's like, I'm forgiven, but now what? And that's why people struggle with like, what, what do we do after like, I've accepted Christ, he's forgiven me of my sins. So cool. Now, now I kind of obey his commands and, mm-hmm. and live in a way where I don't do what I kind of want to do, but I know it's wrong. And, and I think Christians get a little confused there. And so I think we need to ask the question of what are we saved to? And mm-hmm. we're saved there's a purpose that we might actually kind of re-enter the fullness of our humanity. Yeah. And I think that that puts a, a spin on it that's just different than, okay, you're justified, and then you have questions of about, like, what comes next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's fantastic. And I, while you were answering that, I rolled over in my chair to the bookcase— <laughs> And I found the book, and it's almost like you were saying exactly uh, the quote I was looking for. It's this book by Haley Gorenson Jacob called Conform to the Image of a Son. It's, it's fantastic. And I was reading it a couple of weeks ago, and this is what she says, which is very similar to what you just said, and I think it is really helpful when thinking through this. She says, the goal of salvation is the believer's conformity to the Son of God, their participation in his rule over creation as God's eschatological family and as renewed humanity, but only only and always with the purpose of extending God's hand of mercy, love, and care to his wider creation. This was humanity's job in the beginning. It will be believers' responsibility and honor in the future. It's God's purpose and calling his people in the present. Believers are glorified in part in the present through their participation with God and bringing redemption to creation. They will be glorified in full at the resurrection when they too will experience the resurrection of the body. Right. And I think that's a really wonderful way of thinking about it as kind of process and event of like, yes, it is something that is happened it is happening and it will happen. And we've been talking about that as we've been thinking through the doctrine of salvation. It, it has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. Uh, let me shift us a little bit here. JT, uh, when we are glorified, when I'm glorified... Um, you are glorified, Kyle. Ah, thank you. And I am being glorified <laughs> and I will be glorified. And you will be, yeah. Will I be divine? Oh, yeah, theosis. Interesting. Yeah, I mean... I'm going to answer that question in a second. Uh, last night I was teaching in the Storyline Institute, kind of the, the stuff that we've all been thinking about in our respective churches. And last night was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. And one of the questions that was asked kind of related to what we were just talking about and taking us to the next is, is being full of the Holy Spirit better than what Adam and Eve had in the garden? That was a question somebody asked me last night. Uh, and my answer, you, can, you guys can either cancel me for this or, or disagree, whatever. I said, yeah. I mean, because what we have, and we're thinking about this golden chain in Romans chapter 8, and uh, even we talked about the order of salvation last night um, and the different kind of views of, of how people think about that. But in the garden, God was with us. In the spirit, God is in us. And I think that's kind of one of the things that we're talking about here is that uh, whether we're talking about the doctrine of divinization or what some theologians would call theosis of like participation in the divine life. 
uh, is we now don't just have God walking in the garden with us. We have the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And that does mean that this is both process and event. The event is already happening, is happening, and will happen. When we talked about the doctrine of sanctification a few weeks ago, we kind of were talking about the relationship between positional holiness and also progressive sanctification. I think that can also be true here for this doctrine of glorification, is that we are learning more and more. I, I, I like Patrick's language, and I think it's helpful language. If you mishear what I'm about to say, it could be bad. So uh, hear this charitably. We're being rehumanized in the best sense of that word. It's not that we've been dehumanized. It's not that we're less than human or subhuman or something like that. That's not what I mean. I mean, like we, we have always been image bearers, even in the midst of our brokenness and sinfulness. But because of salvation, we are being rehumanized in the best sense of the word to participate in this divine life as image bearers. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 15 through 20, or Hebrews chapter one, like we are now made in the one and into the one who is the image of God. And it's the Holy Spirit that's helping us participate in that divine life. Now, it isn't that we become divine. There is one of the most important distinctions that we can make biblically and theologically is the distinction between the creator and the creature. We will always be creature. But because of God's love for us, he's inviting us to participate in this divine triune life from the Father through the Son, and now empowered by the Holy Spirit as we we kind of fully take on what it means to be true image bearers of God. Yeah. Okay. Hold on though. One second. Isn't my Uh-oh. humanity bad? Isn't my humanity bad? You're Kyle Worley? Kyle's is. <laughs> The way the reason I'm asking it, JT, is because when we think about glorification, we think about salvation. I think sometimes, and regardless of where it comes from, it enters into the pool. There's this idea of like, well, I'm being saved from my humanity, and glorification is the final step in being totally divorced from uh, all that kind of made me human and inferior and bad. And so to say that a crucial part of glorification is we're being rehumanized, some might hear that and go, but why is that a good thing? Like, why would that be a good part of the story? Isn't it better for me to be escaping all of this? For you, maybe. Uh, For the rest of us. Uh, no, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, so we we all kind of broadly live in like this evangelical, baptistic, and reformed tradition. We're all Protestants at the at the bare minimum. And I think one of the challenges that, that the Protestant traditions have had broadly is sometimes our anthropology can begin with Genesis chapter 3. Now, we mm-hmm. certainly cannot divorce anthropology from Genesis chapter 3, but the Bible begins anthropology or the doctrine of what it means to be a human in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as creatures set apart by God to bear his image, given unrelegated and unqualified dignity above all of his creation. And so, as Patrick has already said, men and women bear this image of God and also share a task of cultivating beauty. And uh, I heard a famous theologian say once, bringing order out of chaos, uh, imaging God. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our task to go do. Now, we don't want to, a lot of what is happening kind of, I think, in the modern secularizing West and the ideas of radical individualism is their anthropology maybe only has Genesis, they wouldn't say Genesis 1 and 2, but it's it's this idea mm-hmm. of kind of finding yourself and being you and finding kind of purpose in yourself. We have to have a doctrine of anthropology that includes Genesis 3. But when we think about salvation, whether it's justification, sanctification, glorification, 
humans are being rehumanized and the world is being re-edenized because of mm-hmm. what Christ has accomplished for us and what he's doing now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I, I want to be careful to say, because I agree with what, what Patrick said, it isn't just that we're going back to Genesis 1 and 2, it's that we're actually getting something better. The the, mm. the, the intent of God's creative order is actually coming to its fruition. What God intended to start in Genesis 1 and 2 is going to come to its completion because of who Christ is, what he's done, what the Spirit is doing, and what Christ will come and do uh, in the last days. And, and like all doctrines, just want to add to what JT said here, you know, it all begins in Genesis 1 with understanding what does it mean to be made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And if you go back into kind of the ancient Near Eastern history of that, you know, they believe that an image of God is really an idol or an icon of God. That's why God says, don't make an image of me because number one, I'm invisible. Number two, I already have an image of myself. It's humanity. Right. And what happens in Genesis is that the spirit comes and lives with it. Like he, he gives them life. The spirit enters Adam and Eve and gives, gives them life. So there is, there is something about us participating in who God is in the garden and that there's something lost in the fall that we see within the tabernacle and the temple that they are kind of re-entering God's presence. This is why it's so important. Um, is it at First John that says, uh, we shall all be like him for we shall see him as he is, or we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. What does that mean? We shall be like him. Well, it's directly tied to our vision of who he is. So in the garden, they saw, they walked with God in the garden. They had, they had his spirit kind of breathing life into them. They were the idols, the icons, the image of God. And that that's what we need restoration to. And so I think it's more fully human in that sense, because we we truly become who we were meant to be right. at, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, and JT's introduced another important influence on the way that people think about the doctrine of glorification, but also sanctification for what it's worth. Um, but JT, you mentioned individualism and how it impacts the way that we think about this. And I think that one of the deficiencies in the way, at least in the context that I'm in, where individualism and affluence are playing on the way that we think about the doctrine of glorification, um, we think of it only in terms of it, of its personal or cosmetic impact on us. So like, I cannot tell you how many people I meet who think of glorification as when they finally will have the figure that they wanted right. their entire life. You know, like, all of my cosmetic deficiencies will now be gone. Uh, but not only that, but they only think about glorification from its impact um, personally. And, you know, when we think about image bearing, the, Im- the image of God is is incomplete until it is in a shared capacity. Mm. Like Adam does not fully image God, right? And so when we think about the significance of the restoration of image bearing in glorification, we should also understand it not in terms of me, but in terms of we, um, that that our collective imaging of God will finally and fully be what it should be. And I feel like this is a piece of this discussion that is um, missing almost entirely. And not only that, probably accounts for why when we think about justification, glorification, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, glorification is the forgotten part of that conversation. It's, yeah. it's kind of the least interesting to us because um, we're not always sure like, well, great, I, I'll look better in the new heavens and the mm. new earth. Um, and so anyway, I was, I just was sitting here thinking that when you brought up individualism, JT, Yeah, I'm not sure what the solution is. Hmm. And it's also really cool that in Romans 8, all of creation gets to participate in this glorification. Yeah. Because it talks about yeah. creation is longing for the revelation of the sons of God. They're groaning like we're kind of groaning. 
because there's something about us being glorified, which then we can bless all of creation, which we actually see that yes. in Genesis and with Abraham, yep. kind of the call for Israel to the nations. And so what's cool about glorification is you can talk about it in a personal way. You can talk about it in a, per- yes. in a communal way. And you can talk about it in a cosmic way because all of creation yes. will be glorified. And as I kind of study this as well, you think about Revelation and the city is, um, it keeps describing it as jewels that shine. And I've always been yeah. like, What's going on here? Like, is this just really pretty? But I think throughout the scriptures, this kind of light imagery mm. is getting to that idea of glorification, that the, mm. there was this, there's this light that's shining from the new city of Jerusalem. And so that, that's exactly what they see as they see into the heavens, right? They see all these like shining rocks and all these things. And I've always been like, what do I do with that? Like jewels are cool, but I, I think it's, it's an image of glorification. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Well, on that note of light and glorification, Patrick, you just finished a book on the transfiguration. Is that right? Yeah, it's due tomorrow, actually. Okay. <laughs> so let's wrap apparently this up. publishers no, that, don't <laughs> apparently publishers don't care about due dates. Somebody I've never met one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so is that a picture of? Are we getting a little foretaste? Is that what? Is that like glorification breaking in in that moment? Are we getting a little picture of what will be true for all of us in creation at this event that's coming? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You asked the question, like, don't I want to get rid of this body? But Jesus came to for, to perfect our human bodies. And I don't mean that in, like, the idealized form that Jen's talking about. I think that, you know, the church fathers talk about, like, the, the purity of his soul caused him to be completely bright. It, he was divine. But it also, it talks about in Mark, it says, like, his clothes were brighter than anyone on earth could make them. What is he, what are they trying to say? They're saying like he's a heavenly being and his face shone like Moses did on the mountain. And so Jesus came, he took on flesh, he took on the form of slave, uh, this, a slave in order to perfect humanity. And so he's giving them a preview of his own glorification, which we then will participate in as we are unified to Christ. So even if you go, I don't want to belabor this too much, but if you go to 2 Peter 1.17, it speaks about, Peter speaks about the transfiguration being on the mountain. And he said, when Jesus received honor and glory, 
from God the Father. So there's our word there. He received glory. That's that's a picture of the glorification. And if you go throughout the narrative, just think about the narrative. It begins with after six days, this occurred. This is seventh day theology, new creation. It happens on a high mountain. Again, um, like the mountain of God. This is where all things will be made new. His clothes become intensely white. He's like a heavenly being. His face shines. Moses and Elijah appear with him. They are both transfigured figures. A bright cloud comes over them. This is like the glory cloud. And Jesus says, this is my beloved son. But I think, you know, this is my beloved son. But I think Paul actually continues that imagery and says, well, you can also be adopted into this sonship, this sonship and daughtership that you can actually be incorporated and participate in Christ. So yeah, I think this is, uh, a preview for the disciples of Jesus's glorification. I would also add, though, it comes in the context of suffering. Mm-hmm. Jesus, this this comes on the heels of Jesus predicting that he must go to the cross and he must die. And, you know, when I saw that, a lot of things clicked for me because I think he's correcting the disciples. He's saying, yes, I will be glorified, but it's only, only going to come through suffering. And so mm-hmm. how does that help us? Because we also live on this earth in the time of suffering in a time of groaning, in a time of waiting. And Jesus is actually telling us that's the only path to glorification. That's the mm-hmm. only path to glory. And that's, ex- again, exactly what Paul picks up in Romans 8 when he talks about the sufferings not worthy to be compared that the, than the glory to be revealed to us. Yeah. He's saying, you know, this is light, this is momentary affliction, but what's coming is so much better. And I think Jesus is giving that same hope to his disciples in the transfiguration. That's good. Okay, why Moses and Elijah? Yeah. Give us the give us the quick hit on the transfiguration. <laughs> so, in my I have bo- a follow up question for this too. So in my ahead. in my book, I have eight reasons why, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I don't mm-hmm. think I think all of them kind of work. But I'll give you the two most common views that I think work the best. Number one, I do think they represent the law and the prophets. Mm-hmm. So, people who were looking at Jesus were saying, "Hey, does this guy agree with the Hebrew scriptures?" And God says, "This is my beloved son." You need to be asking the opposite question. Do they agree with him? Because he's the one who wrote them, okay? But the second reason I think is almost more important, both both Moses and Elijah asked to see God on the same mountain. Mm -hmm. Both Moses and Elijah asked, Moses on the mountain said, hey, God, let me see your face. And and God said to him, no, you can only see my back and I'll hide you in this cleft of the rock. I think it's Exodus 33. Mm -hmm. And then you have 1 Kings 19 maybe where Elijah also asks to see God. He goes up on the mountain, and God doesn't reveal himself in an earthquake, in a fire, but in a soft whisper. Mm-hmm. I think both of these figures, most primarily, wanted to see the face of God, and they see the face of God in Jesus Christ himself. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have two paired reasons, and then we could get even further into that. I do think— Hang on. I got to go write a sermon real quick. That's, that's good. <laughs> 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 I think we can give other reasons. I think they're heavenly witnesses, and then you have the earthly witnesses on the mountain. You've got a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff going on there. I'm trying to remember all the other reasons. Oh, um, you know, they both have kind of unusual deaths. Not, not completely unusual, but, you know, Elijah is transfigured. It seems like he's brought up to heaven. And then Moses' mm-hmm, body, mm-hmm. they don't know where it's buried. So there's all this stuff with kind of Moses maybe being brought up from the dead and Elijah being brought down from heaven, showing that Jesus has authority over heaven and earth and under the earth. I, I could give you a bunch of other reasons, but those are some of them. Okay, now I want you to answer another question. Um, I have heard a teaching, and um, I'm going to reserve my own thoughts on this because I'm curious to hear yours, but I'm hoping you agree with me, that (laughs) one of the things that we should be moved by in the Transfiguration account is that for Moses, 
it's his first time to actually enter the promised land. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I think I even have a line in my book. Maybe I read that from someone else too. But, you know, he longed on the mountain to see, he saw Canaan, but he wasn't able to enter it. But it's mm-hmm, called mm-hmm. In, in Isaiah, Emmanuel's land. And think about, think about Matthew. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he's actually, mm-hmm. not, not only is he in the land of Israel, but he's with Emmanuel himself. Mm-hmm. So it's Emmanuel's land. So I think it goes even deeper than this is the f- first time he steps foot in Israel's land, but he's actually in God's presence, which, which I think the land is a representation of. So I think it even goes deeper than just him being in the land of Canaan. I, I think he's with Emmanuel at that point. So good. Wow. Okay, that's good. We agree. But you added to what I thought, <laughs> so that's even better. <laughs> you, you, can, it's, it's, it, you can put on the back of your book, uh, Jen Wilkin agrees. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, well, I was curious to hear what Patrick would say because sometimes those ideas are presented like really quickly in, in the middle of a bigger discussion mm-hmm. and they can almost feel a little too neat and clean, a little too good to be true. Um, and so, um, and, and they can be sentimentalized in a way that I don't love. And so I like that there's, uh, not only is it a good observation, but there are even further good observations to associate with it. So enjoyed hearing from you on it. Okay, let's land here. Why is glorification good news? Like, why is the doctrine of glorification good news? We've been trying to answer this with every aspect of the doctrine of salvation. Why is it good news that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next? Patrick, we're going to give you the final word on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really good news because God is promising to put everything right Mm -hmm. and to make everything whole again. And I don't know, I mean, you know, I began with saying we, we think a lot about how we're saved and not really the end goal. Um, but, you know, second, just 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I, I don't know what's better news than that. Hmm. Because I think even for your listeners, I don't know what sort of suffering they're going through, but everyone goes through suffering. Everyone has longings. And I love that language of there's an eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison to your suffering. And so, like, I think this is the gospel. This is the good news Mm. that God is restoring all things. He's restoring all things in Jesus Christ. And that includes us both individually and as a community and all of creation. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Romans talks about you, you asked the question at the beginning, I wish we could talk more about this because I'd love to hear what you guys think, but like, what does it actually mean to be glorified? Romans 8 talks about creation being set free. Right. Free from what? I, I guess sin? I, like, I, I don't know how to answer that question myself. It's just we're set free, but the idea is like you're, there's complete freedom in God, in God's presence, and that's true for us and for creation. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a, we all want freedom. That's a wonderful idea, right? I, I, I just love to tease out like, Glorification and freedom are tied together in, in exactly mm-hmm. what way. I, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Well, I do have a thought on the creation piece as a devoted pet owner. Um, this is going to sound so cheesy and dumb, but like when our last pug died, which is a big event in our house, like we like these dogs. I'm not a dog person. I'm just a, my dog person. <laughs> but um, I really thought about why do we feel so sad, you know, when, when you lose a, a, a beloved pet and should we feel embarrassed about it? And... Um, I just spent some time meditating on how um, creation is not culpable for the fall, but bears all of the impact of the fall. And um, so I think that's 
one of the reasons it is being set free because, um, you know, you think about even um, the way that uh, an animal can absorb um, mistreatment or it suffers from disease, like they bear every impact of sin um, and bear no responsibility mm-hmm. for it. So yeah. uh, that's, that's that's where simple. I tend to go with that yeah. idea. Yeah, and sin sin is, uh, it, it's uh, it's described as slavery mm-hmm. in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So we think sin is, uh, you know, doing what we want to do and actually having freedom to do what we want to do. But in the right. scriptures, it just flips it on its head. It's like, no, sin is actually, it's, it's, it's actually making you more enchained to something else. Mm-hmm. You're actually mm-hmm. locked mm-hmm. in this prison. And glorification is actually a picture of those, the, that, those prison doors being thrown open that's right. and saying, you're yeah. completely mm-hmm. free now. That's good. And I think that's such mm-hmm. good news, right? Because... Uh, people come into our church and they do, they want freedom, but we have, we're so confused on what freedom is. Mm-hmm. And so, man, pushing into this doctrine, I think is so helpful in that regard. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. But also my pugs are going to be glorified, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. They I remember they made are, a movie gents. about that, right? All, all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> there we all go. dogs go to heaven, guys. There we Not go. cats, I guess. No, no way. Yeah. Just sorry, sorry no. Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, Patrick, thanks for making time for us. Appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate you guys. Absolutely. If you haven't had a chance to check out some of Patrick's books, uh, you know, a great entry point uh, for our listener might be the Visual Theology book. Go check that out. It's worth picking up, checking out. If you're looking to do a study on Acts, his Acts commentary is fantastic. So check that out as well. Uh, If you want to find Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts and drop a question in there for our season end Q&A episodes that are coming up real soon. Uh, Check out trainthechurch.com slash support if you want to find out more about what we have going on with other podcasts. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to season two of our sister show, Confronting Christianity with Rebecca McLaughlin, encourage you to check it out. We've had some great guests on this season. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace.